On episode 25 of the podcast, we talk with Valerie DeFazio Vacula, author of The Italian Campaign, The Forgotten War, a true-life account of the experiences of her father, Pittsburgh World War II veteran, Albert DeFazio. On Veteran Voices, the podcast, we like to talk about local veterans' stories and with those who tell and share those stories in creative and interesting ways. Our guests have included oral historians, scholars, authors, filmmakers, poets, photographers, and activists in the veterans' community. I'm Kevin Farkas of the Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh Oral History Initiative. Welcome to Veteran Voices, the podcast, a production of the Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh Oral History Initiative and the Veterans Breakfast Club. Our mission is to give every veteran a chance to share his or her story. Valuable work you're doing, young man. Speaking the voice of the people. I believe in it. What's that guy yakking about? Something's going on. Memoir is a special kind of autobiography, usually focused on a specific portion of one's life. Think of Elie Wiesel's remarkable memoir, Night, which is a haunting tale of personal experience in surviving the Holocaust. A difficult subject for sure, brutal, uncomfortable, but necessary to understand. The Holocaust happened. It happened to people, and some of those people survived it, like Elie Wiesel. And his story is a monument to truth. That's the essence of memoir. I will say, with memoir, Fiesel advises, you must be honest. You must be truthful. Of course, anything else would be fiction, right? The memoir reveals the firsthand truth about someone, about his or her life and times. Each of us is a book waiting to be written, says the author Thomas Sirignano. And that book, if written, results in a person explained. That's what Aldefazio's memoir does. It explains who he is through his experiences in World War II. It's a deeply personal story of truth and survival during and after the war, preserved and retold by his daughter Valerie, our guest today. Here are some reviews of that book, and I think they're worth repeating here. One reader writes, this is a great story. I'm so glad the DeFazio family was able to share this. The Italian campaign paved the way for the Allies to overcome Hitler. We are so appreciative to Mr. DeFazio for his service to our country. Someone else writes, the book gives us a firsthand look at the horrors of war. I read it without stopping. And again, someone says, this is an absolutely wonderful book written in a heartfelt manner. It moves between the horrors of war and the humor that can be found in any human condition. I was particularly moved when Al described meeting his Italian family members for the first time. And finally, and I think this is a very important point, someone writes, Al says that no one owes him anything, but I think we all owe him, and others like him, a debt of gratitude for safeguarding our freedom. Al DeFazio's story is, in fact, a remarkable tale of personal experience in surviving World War II. It's a story that for many years went untold because it was just too painful to talk about. After all, some of the worst battles of World War II were fought during the Italian campaign, and Al DeFazio fought in most of them. Those memories, those truths, were too painful to share with others, including Al's family. That is until Valerie realized that her dad's remarkable life was, indeed, an important book 
just waiting to be written. Welcome, Valerie, to Veteran Voices, the podcast. Todd Pastino is on the line with us. Hi, Kevin. How are you? You know, World War II veterans are kind of famous for not really talking about the war very much. When did you find out your dad's story? Well, you know, I learned about it, that he was even in the war. I, You know, I was about 13 or 14. He was, you know, cleaning out a drawer, and I happened to catch some medals there. And I said, hey, Dad, you know, where did you win these? I didn't know what they were. And he looked at me, and he just said, well, kind of. And I said, well, where'd you get them? He said, well, I was in the war. Oh, wow. I didn't know you were in the war, Dad. I said, what war were you in? He said, World War II. So I said, well, what are these medals for? And he said, well, one was a Purple Heart. He said, I was wounded. And uh, I just looked at him. And he never really looked at me. You know, he just didn't want to look up at me. It was like, you know, he just didn't want to talk about it. But, you know, he did come out and tell me, you know, that he was wounded and he had uh, shrapnel in his back. And that's what the Purple Heart was for. And uh, then I said to him, well, did you ever shoot anybody or did you ever kill anybody? And he goes, I don't know. And I said, well, what do you mean you don't know? He goes, I don't know. I hope not. So that was the end of it for a long time. And then um, one time he had gone to a um, a picnic and uh, Tony DeLuca was there, our state representative. And he was talking to my dad about it. And he says, you know, Al, you've got to go see this gentleman at Mike Doyle's office you know, they want to learn everything they can about World War II veterans. They want to get their stories written down and put in the archives. So my dad went home and he wrote his story down. And one day I was over there and I had to be in my 40s by then. So all that time had passed. And uh, he pulled it out and he said, can you read this for me? Go over it and make sure it's okay. Well, I'm sitting there reading it and tears running down my eyes. I'm like, Dad, I, I can't believe that you went through all of this. I had no idea ever. So it was pretty sad for me to read that. And then, you know, he had given it to him, and then we we put it back, and once he started coming to the breakfast, you know, it started to come out again, you know, so that's about how much I had heard from him. What was the saddest part of his story for you? Oh, the saddest part was um, reading the part of him at the Rapido River. You know, he told me that his best friend was blown up right beside him, and, you know, to this day, he cannot remember his best friend's name. And knowing that, you know, knowing the type of man my father is, he's just a great man, but he would help anybody. But when I read the part where he was trying to retreat, and he did, but he was wounded, and um, he looked over, saw his best friend blown up, and he thought, what do I do? Do I, do I lay here and bleed to death? Do I, do I, you know, freeze to death? Do I let the Germans get me? He said, or do I run, make a run for it? So he said he decided to just make a run for it. So he did. And then he came across, he saw a body a few feet away from him that just flew up into the ground and came down. He went over to the, the, the soldier and turned him over, and it was his lieutenant. So he said he was hit pretty bad, but he was able to flag down a couple other soldiers running by. He says, you've you got to help me. This is um, Lieutenant Spike. You know, if we don't get him out of here, he's going to die because he's hurt bad. And, you know, they, they brought him back to the Rapido River and grabbed a pontoon boat out of the river and put the Lieutenant Spike into the pontoon boat and my dad he said you know when you're scared you can do anything i don't know how i got the strength to do it but i did it so there he was with two holes in his back dragging the lieutenant down the bank of the river to an army hospital and that's a hard story for him to tell too yeah he he talks about the his friend who was killed as his double right that was the one who was kind of looked just like him he was like it was like his twin 
Yes, yes. And it's so interesting that, um, you know, because I've heard your dad tell this story in, in such vivid detail. I mean, he seems to remember every detail of it except his friend's name. He said that name has lost to him, but I, I know that you've done some incredible sleuthing, and, and you're pretty sure you know who he was. Yes, I do. I do. I, you know, I believe the, the man's name would have been Joseph DeSanto. And I think because, and I've even talked to a woman from the Texas um, Museum in Texas, and she did some looking up for me too, and that was the name that she came up with because they had went to boot camp together, and the last name being, you know, so close together, you know, they stood together in line, and that's how they just became best friends. But they also were told many times that they looked a lot alike, like brothers. Wow. I wonder if it would ever be possible to contact any members of the DeSanto family. You know, I've looked them up, I've tried, and I just can't seem to find, you know, I don't know where to go through other than Facebook and things like that, because I have looked. Right. Yeah. It's it's not a super common name, but fairly common name. Right. One of the great things about your book is that not only does it tell your father's story in such intimate detail, but it also gives a much broader picture of the war and the war in Italy. Um, Can you describe, just for our listeners, a little bit about uh, the Rapido River debacle? It's considered one of the great blunders of World War II, maybe the, 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 the greatest blunder that the Americans committed during the war. And in fact, there were congressional hearings about it. It was such a debacle. Can you describe you know, what went wrong and, and uh, what it was all about? Well, it, it, it should have never happened, really. They were just trying to take all the, um, you know, they were going trying to get onto Rome and Anzio. So they were trying to get the German soldiers away from that part of the war and bring them to Monte Cassino. And so that that part really should have never happened because they lost hundreds and thousands of soldiers, and it was just, you know, that's why they brought General Mark Clark up on charges, but nothing ever came of it. Your book is subtitled uh, Forgotten War, and uh, the title is The Italian Campaign, and and one of the arguments of the book, and I think you're absolutely right, is that the Italian campaign is really a forgotten element of World War II, that, that we kind of think about Pearl Harbor, and then we skip to the invasion of Normandy, mm-hmm. and we forget about those years in between when we really struggled uh, in the war against Germany. So your dad, I think, um, I think has lived with that, you know, because that that he because he wasn't at Normandy, he wasn't in the Battle of Bulge, he wasn't in these battles that everybody is familiar with. He was in Italy, and that's always been a kind of a shadow, I think, of uh, Italian campaign veterans. Would you would you say that's the case? Yes, exactly. You know, it's like every time he hear he watched something on the History Channel, or he hears, you know, a veteran stand up to speak. He, nobody says nobody ever talks about the Italian campaign, and it was it was one of, if not the bloodiest campaign going. People just don't realize that. Valerie, your title also evokes for me a sense that your father's story, you know, was put away for so many years that it was forgotten in a sense. Yes, and I think he wanted to forget about it. Um, like I said, he never wanted to talk about it, and, and it was just something that he just put in the back of his mind. And then, you know, once he was asked about it and he was able to tell about it, I think it came out more and more. Well, let's talk about that process a little bit. I'm always curious as to how uh, people can draw out these stories from veterans who haven't told their story for many years for, you know, any number of reasons. Now, mm-hmm. this is a memoir of your father's, but it was told to you. 
what was that process like? Did, were you able to, you know, as someone who, you know, knows your father intimately, were you able to pull out the parts of the story that he may not have wanted to tell a close relative? Or was that an easy process for you to get through? No, it wasn't easy. And, and, and I, you know, I hear from my aunts and uncles, like his brothers and sisters, after they read the book, they said, you know, we never knew that our brother went through this. We didn't know about the medals. We didn't know what he went through. He never talked about it. And, um, it, and I think, you know, with, with the Veterans Breakfast, what Todd is doing with the veterans is just amazing because he's able to get them to tell their stories. They, these stories need to be brought out. And the more I started to attend the breakfast meetings with my dad, the more he started to talk about it. So it got a little bit easier as we went on, but I know there's still some things that he hasn't told me. He, he said there's, and so I wasn't able to get it out of him. He did see a lot more than what he's telling us. Yeah. But he just didn't want to talk about it. Yeah, you're not getting the, the entire story. And, I, and I, I find it so striking that veterans often have a tough time, especially talking to their close family members about their experiences, especially daughters, I think. I think they want to, you know, protect their family in a sense from from what they saw and experienced. So I guess when you were going through the process of writing the book, you must have been very aware of how hard this was for him to kind of bring up. And it must have been a very delicate kind of ballet that you were engaged in, kind of wanting to wanting the story and pressing him but not pressing him too hard. Right, right. And, you know, there was times I wanted to add some things to it, and he just kept telling me, I only want the truth, nothing more. He said, I want nothing made up. Did he go back and read the stories uh, that you were writing up and edit those as you were going along? Yes, I would, I would write them down, and then I would um, bring them to him to review to make sure. And he said, well, that's not exactly how it happened. You have to go back and change it or, you know, this happened first and this happened after, so you have to switch that around. And so I, I had, you know, I would write so much and take it to him to read and, you know, have him go over because, you know, that was, he kept saying, I don't want anything thrown in there. I don't want anything made up. You know, much of the the book is bleak. He, Your dad did not have a good experience in the Army, it seems, from almost day one. But yeah. there there were very nice moments in the book that, that kind of uh, provided some kind of relief, you know, from the difficulties he faced from basic training on. Mm-hmm. And one is the wonderful kind of reunion with family that he met in Italy. Can you talk about that? Oh, yes. That that part, every time I tell somebody that story, it just it gives me chills and it gives whoever I'm telling chills because it's just amazing that, you know, somebody 19 years old being in a strange country, being in a town that he knew where his parents came from, you know, he happens to be in a canteen one day. And, uh, you know, the bartender says, hey, any of you soldiers here from around Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania? My dad looks at him like, well, I am. Why? And he says, well, there's an Italian fellow over there, you know, wanting to meet people from there. So, you know, my dad Luckily, he was brought up speaking Italian, so he spoke Italian very well, still does to this day. But he started to talk to this young man, and they come to find out that they're first cousins. And he was like, you know, the, his cousin's going, I've got to call the family. I've got to let them know you're here, you know. And he's like, well, I, I don't know if I could, you know, get away to come and meet them, but I'll try. But as it was, he was lucky enough to get a two-day leave from the captain and he said he, you know, he got on this train. He said it was a beautiful train. It took him to Foggia. And from there, you know, he asked if there was any, any way to get up this mountain that he had to go up to. He had to get to a town called Alta Vila, the town that his mom and dad were born in. 
And uh, he said, no, because all the bridges were blown out. And, you know, he said, you're going to have to walk. So my dad started to walk. And he said, it just seemed like forever. But he finally had stopped to ask somebody. He says, you know, I'm, I'm looking for my family. And he said, I'm looking for the DeFazio family. Do you know them or, you know, anybody about them? Or, and he said, this gentleman said, no. He said, but there's a little white house sitting over there, that farmhouse. They've been there for years. I think he probably knows everybody in the town. So he said, okay. So my dad goes down to the little farmhouse and he knocks on the door and he says to the gentleman, he's a little short Italian guy, comes to the door and he says his name is Albert DeFazio and he was looking for his family. He said the little Italian man stood there and stared at him and he said in Italian, oh my God, it's my sister's son Mm. from America. So that that just gives me chills. It's like, what what are the odds? So, and they invited him in and they, you know, made homemade pasta for him and gave him wine and they made him spend the night. He got to meet his, his aunt. And then, um, that the next day they took him up to the town of Alta Vila and he got to meet his mother's brothers and sisters and all of his cousins. And he goes, you know, they looked past the American uniform and I was their family and they treated me as so. And he said, it was just an experience that I'll never forget because, you know, we weren't allies yet with Italy. So you didn't know how those people were going to be, you know, treat you. He said, but they looked past my uniform and treated me as their own. Valerie, your dad, you know, the Italian American going back to fight on Italian soil, potentially killing uh, mm-hmm. Italians along with the uh, Germans and, uh, you know, whomever, his unit came across. How did he feel about that that prospect of fighting against his ancestors? Well, you know, speaking Italian helped him out of a few messes. And uh, he was asked in the beginning when he was, you know, in boot camp, he said, you know, like, what if, what are the chances of you being an Italian American and you getting sent to Italy? You know, like, are you going to be able to shoot at them? You know? And he said, if somebody's shooting at me, I'm shooting back. And, you know, that, that, that came a part of it at one point. He said that him and a couple of guys were out, you know, just walking around, looking around, and they thought nothing of it. And the little Italian man comes out of his house and hangs up these white sheets. And, you know, they thought nothing of it. But a few seconds later, they started getting bombarded with all kinds of shell and, you know, firing and gun firing and everything. He said they ran for the riverbank and hugged that riverbank until it was done. And then it hit them that, you know, this guy was alerting the Germans as to where they were. And, and my dad's first thought is, you know, I want to go blow this guy's house up. So, but they didn't, they just went back to camp and told them what was going on. Interesting. We interviewed an Italian American fellow from World War II, Vittorio Zippi. He was asked when he was inducted into the army, what it would be like to go uh, kill an Italian. And he said, well, they're, they're my, my brothers. And they said, yeah, but you, could you kill an Italian? And he said, they're, you know, maybe if they're shooting at me, but they're still my brothers. You know, and, and he's Vittorio's in his 90s now. And he was emotional telling us that story that deeply affected him, that he was asked how he might deal with, you know, facing, you know, his, you know, relatives. And I think to this day, that was so emotional for him. Does your dad have any emotion one way or another regarding that today? Um, He doesn't show it if he does, you know, like I said, you know, and and another point in the story too, that there was, you know, I think when you, you have, somebody coming after you, it doesn't matter if who they are, you know, it's like you want to save your life. 
And another part of the story where he is, you know, taking a walk, he's by himself. There was two Italian gentlemen walking behind him, and he goes, I know they either wanted to kill me or rob me. And he said, all I could think of is was turn around and talk to them in Italian and tell them, look, you know, I'm looking, my parents are from near here, and you know, can you tell me how to get to the town of Altavilla? And they just looked at him and shook their heads and took off into the woods. And he said, luckily enough, I think it was a... Um, Soldiers from the um, British Army came by, and they were able to pick him up and take him back to his camp. So I, I, I think even though it bothered him knowing that they may have wanted to hurt him, but once they knew that he was Italian too and, and spoke Italian, they didn't bother him. They just went on their way. You know, after the debacle of the Rapido River and, and your dad was wounded, uh, that wasn't the end of the war for him. He, he got, when he was patched up, then he got shipped to Anzio. Can you talk a little bit about his experience there, and that's where the war did end for him. Yes. You know, he had gotten back, and so they had to get back. They had to move on to Rome. And going through Anzio, you know, the, his captain had said to him, you know, DeFazio, you know, we're going to make you the point man. And, you know, at which point he said, you might, they might as well make you the sacrificial lamb man. <laughs> he goes, because that's what you are. But, you know, he said all he could think of at the time is that if he came across any German soldiers that, um, you know, they, they were either cross-sided and couldn't shoot straight he said, but what really was hard for him, that he did be- come across a German soldier, but he was a young boy, almost the same age as my dad. He was laying there dead, and he said, you know, they must have been in such a big hurry to get out of there that they just left this poor soldier there, and that, you know, he didn't want to be there any more than my dad wanted to be there, and he probably had a family back home, and he said that really bothered him a lot, seeing him lay there like that. He said, but just then, a big shell came and hit like just almost next to him, blew a hole in the ground like the size of a, of a car, he said. And um, he said it was just tremendous, the noise. And they just, the, the tank came up and just kept firing and firing right beside my dad. He said the noise was so tremendous, it just knocked him down and he couldn't move or do anything. And then um, someone come over to him and you know, a medic had come over to him and, you know, started to take care of him. And, and they gave him something that knocked him out because he was shell-shocked. And the next thing he knew, he woke up in another hospital in Rome. And the doctor came to him and said, you know, son, we're not going to send you back to the front line. You put your time in, we're going to send you home. And that's what they did. Here's a delicate question. Um, you know, he, so he was evacuated because of shell-shock. I mean, he, everybody has their breaking point in war and in combat. And uh, your dad had reached his. Do you get a sense from him that that has always bothered him, that he's been, you know, not wanting to talk about that element of the war? Because it seems like a lot of veterans won't talk about that. Not really. I mean, my dad, you know, he, he had started the Stars and Stripes and, and the Drum and Baton Corps of Penn Hills. And, you know, it was, we, we practiced inside in the gym and it was noisy at times, you know, and I, I could... Sometimes he would get irritated from from some things, but I never knew why until, you know, later on it dawned on me that it was the loud noise because he still can't, like even during the summer, um, if somebody starts up a a lawnmower or he hears a fireworks or something, he'll jump a little bit. That makes him nervous. But, you know, during the years growing up, I never really noticed that from him because he did come home. He said in the beginning it took him a long time, like he went to the doctors, he said he had nightmares, he had headaches, and he said the doctors back then just fluffed it off. And so he just went on with his life. He said eventually the nightmares stopped, and and then he met my mother and got married and had a family, and you know, my dad's just a good man. He was a good a good husband, a good father, a good provider. 
he did whatever he can for us. And he still does today. I mean, he, he, he's such a good man and he'll take the shirt off his back for anybody. But as far as seeing, seeing, you know, I, now that I know the story, I can, I can see a little bit in him. He, like his patience now runs a little, a lot thinner than it did years ago. And, uh, but I don't know if that's just age or now that his story has come out and he thinks about it a lot more. Yeah, and I've heard that too. And we've done, Kevin and I have done interviews with veterans who haven't really talked about or thought about their service much. And it's an, I've heard feedback from them that after the interview, they're kind of agitated for a few weeks and, and that, you know, all these memories have come back and they have to grapple with them. Uh, but over time, it, it's something that they're very happy that they did. They're happy that they got the story out that it is better for them. Do you think that that's the case with your dad? Oh yeah. Yeah. He, he, uh, he, you know, at one point he said, you know, I, I want to get this story out. I want people to know that, you know, I don't know if it's because of his Italian heritage. He said, but I, I want them to know that it just wasn't the other wars that, you know, the war that I was in was just as, as meaningful as the rest of them. And I, and he's proud of what he did, but he always says, you know, nobody owes me anything. He said, I had a job to do and I did it. And he said, I'd rather live in this country in a ditch than anywhere else in the world. And that's, that's like his saying. And you know, um, he's, he said many times at our breakfast, something, and that is that, uh, nobody owes me anything for what I did. And, and, and of course we all, anybody who hears that just wants to, argue with him and, and embrace him and say, no, we owe you a lot. But when people say that to him, thank you, sir, you know, thank you, you know, we owe you so much. Oh, you don't owe me anything. That's, that's what he, and my husband says the same thing, being an army veteran. You know, we, I had a job to do. I did it. He says, nobody owes me anything. I love my country. You know, God bless America. Does your dad have a sense of how important his story is to us? I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I, I just, like I said, I, I wanted to, to write this book, you know, for my daughter and grandson. I want them to know the, why they have the freedom that they do because of men and women like their grandfather. You know, they can live the lives that they can today. And I, But my dad doesn't understand that. You know, he's still back in the old times, you know, but he doesn't, doesn't want to take anything for granted, but he doesn't want to take any gratitude for it either. We'll return shortly to our conversation with Valerie DeFazio Vacula, author of The Italian Campaign, The Forgotten War. You are listening to Episode 25 of Veteran Voices, the podcast, a production of the Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh, Oral History Initiative, and the Veterans Breakfast Club. To learn more about us and to access our online collection of veteran stories, visit our websites veteranvoicesofpittsburgh.com and veteransbreakfastclub.com You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. Our nonprofit mission is to create communities of listening around local veterans and their stories through public storytelling programs and oral history interviews so that veterans of all eras and branches of service can preserve and share their memories in their own words. Thousands of local veterans, their families, and members of the public have participated in our special storytelling events and Veterans Oral History Project. No one else in the region does what we do to recognize and honor the veterans of Western Pennsylvania, but we need your help. Please support our nonprofit mission by becoming an underwriter or by making a tax-deductible donation. Here's how. Visit VeteranVoicesOfPittsburgh.com or VeteransBreakfastClub.com 
or you can make a secure online donation. Visit our websites, veteranvoicesofpittsburgh.com or veteransbreakfastclub.com, where you can make a secure online donation. Let's return now to our conversation with Pittsburgh's Valerie DeFazio Vacula, author of The Italian Campaign, The Forgotten War, a true life account of the experiences of her dad, World War II veteran Albert DeFazio. And let's talk about process a little bit because, you know, there are people out there who have relatives who are veterans and may want to write a book. How was it to sit down with your dad and write this story up? Now, it was a big process, of course, but did you start at a certain point and then work forward from that? Uh, yeah, I, I knew he had um, from time to time, you know, like he had he had a story in the drawer. <laughs> so I made him pull that out and I put that story together. And I, you know, I wanted to know, Dad, you know, like which came first, like which story started first. I knew to start at boot, boot camp, but then I wanted to go a little bit further. And I, I, I thought I'd start of like his grand, his parents coming over from Italy and where they went to from there. Because they didn't, even though they were born in the same country, they didn't know each other till they came to Pittsburgh. That's when they were introduced. There was like an 18 years difference between my grandmother and grandfather. So I started there because I remembered the stories that my dad told me growing up as a child. You know what what his childhood was like. So I started there, and then um, you know I would ask him certain questions. The hard part for me was. Like he couldn't remember dates and 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 names or name names of specific places and and mountains. So I, I had to research that and and thank God for the internet because that's where I got most of my information was that you know the names of the mountains and the dates that things happened and things like that. You know he can remember a lot of parts like it was yesterday, but like I said, the names and dates are a little bit tough for him. He remembered his lieutenant's name, which is uh, Francis Gorman, I think because he was able to save that man's life. But then, again, to see what happened to his best friend being blown apart in front of him, he cannot remember his name. I, and I've said the name to him, Joseph DeSanto, and he said, you can tell me a hundred times, and I just can't remember the name. How long did it take you to research and write the book? The research in that took about six months, and then putting it all together but maybe nine months total. Well, you did a just a beautiful job with this book, and I I do think it's a it's a wonderful book for people who are World War II aficionados, but also people who just want to read a good story, a good heartfelt uh, um, human interest story that has a lot of great history in it, also. And um, where can people buy it if they want to buy a copy? What's the best way for people to buy a copy of your book? Well, it is available on Amazon and the Kindle, and it's also available on Barnes and Noble's website. And I do keep copies of it in my salon, and I do very well with it there because I, you know, can bring up the topic to people a lot. We have a lot of veterans that come in, so I try to take care of them with, you know, discount haircuts and do what I can for the veterans because I just feel so much more respect for them now. So I do have copies of the book in my salon, which is uh, Sensible Styles in Verona, Pennsylvania. So people have come there and gotten the book. Valerie, what was the process like of getting the the stuff that you had written with your dad out in the book form? Do you have a publisher that worked with you on the book? Oh, yes. I had a wonderful publisher um, the second time around. It was uh, Ray Merriam from Merriam Express, and he is a big World War II buff. So he was a big help 
You say second time around, did you have another publisher? Yes, and, it, you know, and, it, and my dad, being the age that he was, you know, he kept saying, just tell the story, tell the story, and I'm like, Dad, I need more. And, you know, although they did a good job, I wasn't as pleased with it because there was just so much more I wanted to add, but, you know, my dad's fear was like, am I going to live to see this book? <laughs> so, you know, he, he kept, you know, like pushing and pushing it. So, I, you know, after that book was out, you know, I did it. I went on to to add more to the story because I think it was supposed to happen that way because the Heinz History Center had called and asked me to send them a copy of the book. And in speaking to this young lady, she said, did you ever get a copy of your dad's oral history? I said, no, I, I never did hear that. So she sent me a copy of the oral history. And I thought, oh, my God, I could have added all this to the book if my dad wasn't in such a hurry. So she sent me a copy of it. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do this on my own and not even tell my dad that I'm doing it because I don't want him pressuring me again to hurry up and get it done because he's afraid he's going to die and not see it. So I went ahead and I added more to it, but I went with another publisher. And um, this guy is uh, Ray Merriam. He's out of... Um, Connecticut, Vermont, I'm sorry, he's in Vermont. And he was such a big help and such a, a, a wonderful presence to the book. He just added so much more to it. And he helped me get through it, told me what to add, because he was just a big lover of World War II. Has your dad's story changed much over the years? No, no. I mean, he, he might get, you know, something a little bit confused, and I'll say, no, Dad, that's not how it happened. But, you know, he's 91. But for the most part, no, it hasn't changed. Is he becoming more open to um, some of those things that he may not have wanted to express earlier? Is he getting more reflective? That's my question. Yes, yes. I, I noticed, you know, especially since these, these breakfast meetings, I think they have opened up a lot for him. So he was he's able to talk more freely of it. And it's been over 70-some years since he's come home. I mean, the wounds might still be there. You know, he knows that the two holes are still embedded in his back, but he's he is just able to talk more about it. And I think it's because he wants people to know what happened back then. Sure, sure. And as the uh, Italian campaign is, you know, as such, many people really don't understand that part of military mm -hmm. history. Uh, you know, we're finding that a lot of Italians have a, a strong interest in American participation in Italy. As a mm -hmm. matter of fact, uh, I work with a uh, filmmaker there in uh, the Florence area and uh, some other people just recently who are digging up uh, dog tags. And uh, so we're we're connecting in, in a lot of different ways. But, boy, they just um, really appreciate Americans being there during the war. Extremely grateful for what they did. Oh, yes, yes. In fact, you know, me being a hairdresser, I've heard a lot. And, and I, you know, I just had a woman, an, a woman come in last week for a haircut, and her and I started talking about it. She was actually a child born in Italy at the time that this was happening over at Monte Cassino. She lived right near there. And she told me of a story of, um, you know, her being a child in her father's arms, but old enough to remember that a German standing there holding a, a knife to her father's throat, wanting to know if he had, a um, you know, like American soldiers hidden in his basement. And, you know, he kept telling them, no, no, he didn't. And he didn't, she said. But, you know, and, and then other times that she remembered, like, the the American soldiers always giving her chocolate bars and, and feeding her. And that her mother said because she was so cute, she was able to get those chocolate bars and everything from the soldiers. <laughs> so she remembers that kind of stuff. And she said, I might have even been one of the children that, you know, your dad may have helped, you know, in giving us food and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I've heard that. And then I have become, because of social media, 
friends with quite a few men that do the the reenactment of the 36th Division in Italy. Hmm. They're actors. So, you know, we've become friends on Facebook, and, um, you know, they've, they've even posted my dad's story over there and have asked me questions and things like that because they do the reenactments of the war over there. Wow. Boy, that's neat. Absolutely. So, you know, it's as messy and as for lack of a better term, vulgar warfare can be, you know, sometimes it brings us together. Like now, these stories bring us together. Mm -hmm. It reveals parts of our humanity that we take for granted or may not truly understand. And so these stories are just bridging those gaps between peoples of different uh, countries and different cultures. And social media, you have no idea. I mean, like in the back of the book, at the very last page, it tells of, you know, I had gotten an, uh, a message from a young man called Matthew Henry. And he says to me, you know, um, Valerie, says, my grandfather was in the 143rd A Company. He was a captain there. He said, um, and I've read your book, and he said, I believe my grandfather may have been the captain that gave your father the two-day leave to go visit his family. So he sent me pictures, and, like, of course, my dad, he said he looks familiar. He says, but I can't tell you for sure. But the thing that brought it together was when Matthew was telling me the story, he says, my grandfather was a lot older than the rest of the, the, the soldiers there. So when I showed my dad the picture, my dad says, you know, he does look familiar. He says, but I can't tell you for sure because it's been so long. But I do remember that the captain was a lot older than the rest of us. So that brought it together for Matthew and I. And it, it, he was the one that my dad shared his cigars with. And um, he was the one that gave my dad the two-day leave to go and visit his family. So it's oh, wow. just amazing how, you know, you do come together with people. That's very neat. Valerie, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and sharing the Italian campaign, The Forgotten War, the memoir by your father is told to you, which I think is a very special dynamic in in all of this. It's a a father and daughter project, which I think is very special. So thank you for sharing your book today. Oh, thank you. And thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It was great fun, Valerie. Thank you. And I, I hope to see you at a breakfast this spring. Oh, you will. We'll see you April 1st, Todd. We'll be there. Great. I'll see you there. I look forward to it. All right. Thank you. get some advice from Brian Shemini, as I do every week. Brian is our associate producer with Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh. Hey, Brian, how are you? Doing pretty good. How about you? Good. On our first tech segment, we talked about the importance of good sound, and then we talked about the importance of good lighting. And today, we're going to talk a little bit about setting, right? What uh, should an oral history uh, setting look like? So I want to ask your advice What should that setting look like when you sit someone down there in front of the camera? Well, a couple of things. You want your background to be not distracting. You want it to be comfortable. And you want it to to match your subject. Oh, okay. What do you mean by distracting? Well, if you have a lot of bright colors or a lot of things that have very obvious patterns that are going to draw attention... That'll take attention away from your subject and more towards what's behind them. And you want them to be the main focus of the piece. So if you think of it like you're looking at, uh, you know, a, a 
a set on a TV screen, right? And your mm-hmm. subject is there on the screen. And so the things that are behind the subject on the sides, you know, those things shouldn't be distracting like a, like a, right. I, personally, I find bookcases to be very distracting behind people. You know, books are, you know, lots of colors and lots of uh, detail and all those, uh-huh. uh, the bindings of books. I just find that to be a little bit distracting. I'm sure other people don't because it's kind of, it's a common uh, backdrop for oral history recording, but th- that's just distracting to me. How about you? Um, a little bit, depending on how they're recorded. We have all the fancy lenses that will make s- that can separate the subject from the background a little bit, so I tend not to have my attention drawn to that as much. But a, a regular person with just a camcorder or something like that, that's going to be right in focus, and you'll see it a mile away. Another thing that I find distracting are high back chairs. You know, those big comfortable yes. chairs that people often have in their living room that are very high backed and you, know, you can <laughs> lean your head back. But I find those to be distracting to look at. Well, yeah, because you have your subject's face and they have all this genuine emotion being put forth. And then you just see immediately to their left and right, these weird chair wings just kind of sticking out. And, you know, something else that distracts me a lot in at least veteran oral history work is uh, the American flag behind somebody. I just find yeah. that distracting. I mean, you wouldn't think that would be, but... Well, yeah, for sure. It's a patriotic gesture, and it does look well when photographed correctly. But if you just plaster the flag up behind someone, you have very contrasting colors. You've got blue, white, and red that are in horizontal bars, and it almost looks like a color test on your old TV, you know, way back in the day whenever you just get the long beep and just the color bars right. looking for a signal. It, that's what that reminds me of. You know, if it's draped over something like a chair or a table or whatever or with some artifacts on it, it can lend to the scene. But when it's just the backdrop, it can look incredibly distracting because your eye, the human eye is naturally drawn towards straight lines. So you'll be looking at grandpa and then all of a sudden you'll, your eyes will just start trailing off and following all of these horizontal bars. And then you miss what he said because you were so distracted by what's going on behind him. A lot of this is subjective, right? It's a yes. matter of taste, but you know, to each his own. But I mean, there are some things that, that can be very distracting, which aren't really a matter of taste. You know, if, if, if there's plaid fabric behind somebody or plaid yeah. afghan on a couch or on the back of a chair. A lot of things with repetition, like the bookcase, like you mentioned, there's just a bunch of brightly colored rectangles or like the plaid couch or, you know, so you've got the decor of your room is earth tones, you know, like browns and like oranges. And then all of a sudden you just have like a hot pink couch cushion or something or or pillow or whatever that's completely different from the rest of the surroundings. That is going to be a hot spot that you just zero right in on. Right. When we talked about the importance of uh, good lighting last week, we talked about using natural lighting, but sometimes Mm -hmm. that could be overdone. If if it's too bright, uh, Uh you know, that might cast a a, a very bright glow across the room, and that would be distracting to to the viewer. Now, the opposite can be said. If it's too dark, if you can't get enough light, so you also mentioned that uh, comfortability is very important for the setting there. Your subject should be comfortable sitting in front of the camera. A nice chair would be ideal, one that doesn't uh, encourage you know someone to lean to the left or to the right on arms. That's a big one. That happens a lot. You have your shot framed up, and then all of a sudden your subject just slouches down. And all of a sudden, they're no longer in focus, or they're not as close to the microphone, as you'll hear in a few seconds here. It's bad for sound as well. A lot of this stuff kind of piggybacks off of one another. Mm-hmm. Right. 
So you need a comfortable chair that isn't going to encourage them slipping and sliding all over the place and keeping them still while also maintaining their comfort. Because let's face it, some of these stories are over in five minutes and then some of them you're sitting there for a good hour or so. So if your subject is comfortable, they're going to look comfortable as well on camera. Right. But just not too comfortable. And then the other part of this, uh, I think, is important is that, you know, a setting should be uh, appropriate for the content, right? So, for example, if uh, one's talking about their military service, then uh, maybe some photographs on a, on a uh, side table or a table in the rear of the subject, you know, with some military photographs would be appropriate, Right. Mm-hmm. So that's that's sort of uh, appropriate for the content. If someone's talking about their family history, family photos around them, maybe some photos on the wall behind them and the family. If you're interviewing grandpa and he was talking about his days as a paratrooper in Europe during World War II, you want to make sure the setting at least is reflective of somewhat of the times. You don't want to have some super modern kind of very like artsy kind of feel to it. Something that is going to bring out thoughts and feelings of like, wow, this is modern, this is new, whenever the older gentleman in question is speaking about something that happened 70 years ago. You want it to sort of match and kind of have a a theme to it. Right, in the best of worlds, yeah. Yeah, in the best of worlds. That obviously won't happen consistently if, you know, you don't have that space available to you. A lot of oral history work happens right in the living room, around the kitchen table. Yeah. It happens in places too, like libraries and... uh, other types of uh, institutional venues, right? What really bothers me a lot is uh, a sterile environment, you know, bare walls, a flat yeah. t- table with nothing on it in front. I mean, I mean, they just look sterile. And I yeah. uh, I try to avoid those as much as I can. You want the footage to look inviting, like you're inviting them to sit down and listen to the story. Because not only should it be comfortable and appealing for the people recording the interview, but also for the viewers watching it. So if it's this sterile, kind of uncomfortable, like hospital-esque setting, that might unnerve a few people just because it's like, oh, well, are they in a hospital? Are they in a home? Are they somewhere where there's nothing visually distinctive? You should be able to tell that you're filming it in a living room. And as a last resort, there is a a technique that people use. It's called uh, shooting in limbo. It's where there might be a, um, a backdrop behind somebody, maybe a black curtain or a, a, uh-huh. a nondescript sort of backdrop that um, gives no hint of where someone is, right? Those are often used in places where, you know, the, the setting is a problem to record. So mm-hmm. curtains or a backdrop are used to, and you don't know where the person is, right? It's just a, a backdrop right. that kind of works. So that in limbo means that that person could be any place. Uh, right. Telling their story. Yeah. That's how we do our photographs, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very common with uh, portraiture. Yeah. So there you have it. So uh, setting matters, Set- a setting that's not too distracting, a setting that's comfortable for the subject, and also a setting that is appealing and appropriate for the topic at hand, right? Those are three great mm-hmm. considerations to think about when we are thinking about a sense of place. And as you said before, A lot of this is subjective, so I might think that something is distracting, but you and anyone who's watching your recording might think that it's 
pretty cool, like it matches the situation very well. And again, you know, to each his own, it's up to the eye of the one who's viewing the finished piece. But there are just a little tips that you can go by to make it a little easier for yourself doing the recording as well as the person sitting in the chair. Okay, Brian, thanks for the discussion about a sense of place today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Our guest today has been Valerie DeFazio Vacula, author of The Italian Campaign, The Forgotten War. That's it for episode 25 of Veteran Voices, the podcast. I'm Kevin Farkas. See you next time. You're listening to Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh. You're listening to Veteran Voices. You're listening to Veteran Voices. (laughs) 